Welcome to the Deep Into Movies podcast. My name is Stephen T. Hanley. I'm the founder and lead curator of Deep Into Movies. We are a pop-up cinema based in London. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by writer-director Emma Seligman, discussing her incredible debut, Shiver Baby. This film I really loved. I feel it's very different to more of the youth movies out there today. This feels more like a Mike Nichols movie than it does, say, Euphoria. I had a great time talking about her movies, awkward family gatherings, career, getting her shit together, and somehow we managed to talk about The Sopranos, which is always good. Here's me and Emma and go see Shiver Baby. What did you grow up watching? What films made an impact on you? I grew up watching a lot of um, Turner Classic uh, movies um, with my dad. So it was a lot of like old Hollywood stuff like uh, Frank Capra and um, Howard Hawks and Billy Wilder. And um, But at the same time, I grew up with TIFF in my life. So I don't know. I was just constantly, I feel very grateful being exposed to independent and foreign film that I can't remember from that era. Um uh, those were, my parents had pretty traditional, like mainstream Hollywood taste. And then I think as I got older, I had to sort of discover my own independent film taste. Yeah. Did you always want to be a filmmaker? Was that your first aspiration? Yeah, I think I, well, I wanted to be a screenwriter first, but I changed my aspiration a bit for a long time. I wanted to be a film critic and I had my own blog and I uh, loved watching Ebert and Roper with my dad. And uh, in high school, I started writing for like the teen section of the Huffington Post and, you know, reviewing from TIFF uh, and doing stuff like that. But then eventually I transitioned into wanting to to make stuff. But I, I wanted to be a film critic for quite a while. Who did you like reading? Did you like Pauline Kael? I did. Um, I, I liked, I liked, I was pretty basic. I liked Roger Ebert. <laughs> I liked, um, uh, I liked A.O. Scott. I still do. Um, I liked, um, the New Yorker reviewer. I'm forgetting the name of Brody, uh, something. Richard Brody. Richard Brody. Um, yeah. And then I since transitioned into really reading a lot of, um, great TV criticism like, um, Melissa Nussbaum and, um, feel like it's continued from there, but that's, that's most, I, I mostly stuck around <laughs> the same dudes, the big dudes from that era and who still are successful, except for Roger Ebert, obviously was passed. So you were like a hardcore cinephile from day one. That's impressive. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, yes, but not in certain ways. Like I never dug deep into certain genres. Do you know what I mean? Like I never went full on with not, not for any reason, but just because there's not enough time with horror films or Westerns. Uh, and now I, I feel like do I'm Westerns. doing that. You can't do Westerns? I can't do Westerns. It's one of the gaps on my... Because <laughs> I program films as well. So everyone expects you to be a walking encyclopedia. And then there's, I've always got gaps in my knowledge of things I haven't seen that I can't reveal on this podcast. <laughs> you just got to start it out like, oh yeah, that one. That was good. 
big. Just yeah. Very vague terms. Yeah. Yeah. I know that feeling. And how's your experience in film school? I love my experience in film school. I think it was extremely competitive, which was a cultural shift for me coming from Canada. Um, it felt very, I don't want to say cutthroat, but everyone there is very ambitious, which is a great place to, to be in terms of an environment that's encouraging, but it also makes you very anxious. Um, I, the only sort of thing that annoyed me about film school was that, you know, it, you have to make, it's not even annoying. You have to make it your own. Like you have to create the experience that you want for yourself because otherwise you can't treat it like regular, you can't treat it like high school or, or whatever it is, because then you're just, you're not going to get anything out of it. There's going to be no one to hold your hand to show you like this is what I, the, the path you should go on. This is, you know, the, the concentration when you, at least in my program, it was just film production. So I could have left having become an editor and taken every editing class or a sound designer or anything. So sometimes I was like, should I be taking this producing class or this, or this other thing? There were no advisors is what I'm trying to say, but I loved my um, film school experience. And I feel very grateful for the professors that I had. I had a similar experience. It was super competitive and intense. Everyone was trying to outdo each other yeah. with their shorts and their productions. And I had like a nemesis in the class as well because we were both getting like the top grades. So oh, wow. we were always trying to outdo each other with ridiculous shots and yes. one takes. And even when we'd get assigned something really trivial, we were like, all right, I'm going to Kubrick the fuck out of this tiny one minute film and it was good but it was so fierce especially when you have to show your movies to the class and everyone's judging you and giving feedback and stuff it was yeah. just really ruthless yeah it is intense but I also think it prepares you for sort of the intensity that you need <laughs> in this industry but it often when you're in school can become about who has the coolest shot and and <laughs> oh totally and not the yeah, story who's the coolest shot Who's, who's seen the most, who, who yes. can drop in the most obscure film reference in a class. Yes. Or try and stump the lecturer. Yeah. By the end of my film school time, it also, it became like, unfortunately, I think a little bit less about the content we were making in class and more about the content we were making out of class because there was so much access to you know, everyone pretty much was making someone's music video from like the, the the music school or like, you know, there was so much set culture in New York, which I'm so grateful for because you could just get onto set so easily from being on your student projects with people and then working with them more. And then all of a sudden you're on a commercial. Like there's just so, there's so much going on constantly and so many people doing things unpaid <laughs> that you can just do. Yeah. Like you can do a bunch of stuff unpaid until, you know, until it is paid. Um, so I feel like often it was about like who is like who, I don't know. It became more of a scene and it also Instagram definitely got in the mix because, uh, you know, social media, it's sort of like, like, so Instagram blew up sort of like three or four years before I went to college. So like that became that sometimes that frustrated me because your experience sounds even like sounds competitive in the right way. Like I, sometimes I wish it was about like us competing with our actual shorts and not, what everyone was doing outside of the classroom. Um, but it still felt competitive nonetheless. So you made your shiver short during NYU. Is that mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Can you fill in how long was it from making your short to getting your feature financed? 
We wrapped the short in April 2017, and we made the feature August of 2019. So it it took, it. I want to say it took two years, but it really only took like nine months because me and my two producers were trying so many things that we thought would lead us to financing, like pitching it or talking about it to production companies that we'd worked for or interned for and applying to grants and getting advice from certain people on seeing who they could connect us to. And we did that for a long time, I'd say for a year and a half or so, and then, or maybe less. And then I got my visa um, to, to, you know, work in the States. And we brought on our third producer, Lizzie. And once we had her on board, she just convinced us to not wait for anyone and just to ask everyone we knew if they could give us money. And we ended up you know, collecting a lot of small investments to create our project as opposed to having like two or three big financiers. Um, so we started that process in November and then we shot it in August. So what is that? It's like eight months, nine months, nine months. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, that's how long it took once we actually pressed go, you know, and said, we're going to just finance this the way we want to. But there was a lot of sort of talk before, you know, in the in the year prior of like, how do we do this and trying to, you know, do it the more traditional way. How is it keeping your morale and esteem up during that time? That's a great question. I'm so glad you're asking because people don't really ask. And it's it's um, my morale. People need to know the struggle. Well, on one level, you have to just sort of like deal with the fact that you're being rejected constantly, which I think is actually makes you really strong and, and is, is doing a good thing for you. Um, but it feels a little demoralizing. Um, <laughs> but more than that, it's just the exhaustion and the mental exhaustion of like, am I going to do this? Like, am I wasting all of my time trying to raise money for a film that's not going to be made, you know? And I think Rachel Sennett, who plays Danielle, was... The, the person I relied on, honestly, to talk me off the ledge every night to be like, it's going to be OK, like we're going to make it. And I would just cry to her and, and have panic attacks because I'd be like, why am I doing this with my life? Like, this is so stupid. And I was babysitting. So I was like, I was spending all, you know, everyone working, all our producers, like everybody had like three other jobs. So it's like all the time you're spending not making money, you're spending on the movie and you're not sleeping much. And um and more than anything, I had anxiety because once we started casting and things like that, but we still didn't have the money, I was like, all of these people are going to show up on set and we're not going to have money. So every night I just was like running through the worst case scenario in my head, um, basically until we shot. And then that didn't become my issue anymore. That was the producer's issues. Um, but yeah, it's... Um, Did a new set of anxieties come on board once you came on set or... I think, yeah, the sort of normal set anxieties of like, this, okay. this person doesn't want to do this today. We have to shoot this scene instead, you know, or the things that I think I, I those, those anxieties I expected, you know, but, but I, thankfully when you're on set, everyone there is, is, is set up to help you and make you as a director mm -hmm. feel comfortable. And you're there obviously to make the actors feel comfortable. So I felt very taken care of on set, but I think after we shot is when I had less anxiety, but I describe it as sort of a calm down. I think the shooting is an adrenaline rush because everyone is talking to you and there's a million people and everyone has questions for you and you're running off of adrenaline and you're so excited, but anxious and nervous and 
you know, there's a lot of high energy and then you go into a small dark room for months and everybody else on the production moves on with their life and you're staring at all these people's faces. And I, I, it's, I think it's truly like a come down, like it's like a drug come down. And also for us, it was fall. So it just got colder too. So that was the real post was the real morale, um, the low morale time. That was, that was the hardest, I think, in terms of what you're asking about for sure. And how is it shooting in almost real time? I'm thinking of like continuity and also for Rachel to keep on coming back to that frenzied headspace yeah. in almost every scene. Yeah. Um, it, it was hard, especially because we shot out of order. So Rachel had to stay anxious that entire time. So it was a lot of reminding actors about context. I think every morning I really tried to help, especially with Rachel, figure out where Danielle's at in her day. And I think, thankfully, Rachel's, you know, so close and gave me so much of her unpaid time in the years prior that at that point she understood every scene so well. And her and I had talked about how Danielle feels in each scene and what's happening. And it was just easy to sort of remind her every morning. But You know, for a first-time filmmaker, it was honestly a great first film. It was like a sort of extended short because, you know, happening in real time means that I don't have to retrain my brain to be like, wait, what's going on on this day? And in this setting, it allowed me to really feel deeply involved with every minute and second of this day and the story for everybody. So um, I enjoyed it. but it was really sweaty. Um, and, you know, <laughs> it, it, I think certain people were claustrophobic for sure and wanted to get out. And how was it working with all those old school and senior actors on set? It was wonderful. Um, I was very nervous. I definitely had imposter syndrome, but they quickly made me feel so comfortable. And it's just nice to have people who have so much experience on set. They're so much more comfortable. They're so in their element and they're lovely people as well. And they, they just, I think it took me a while to realize, Oh, they want to be here. They just want to make good films. They want to make independent. They don't want to make independent film necessarily, but they want to make good work. Um, and they Mm -hmm. just like working. So it's really nice to see people, you know, of their age with that much experience, just wanting to hop onto an indie in the summer because they believe in it and they think it's good and it fits in their schedule, you know? So I enjoyed it quite a lot. It was interesting though. I think I also had to combat the, like, you know, the, my age and remind myself I'm the one in control. I'm the director because so often. Absolutely. Yeah. I felt like I just wanted to please, <laughs> you know, and, and be like a young woman being like, yeah, you're right. Like, I'll just do what you want. And it's, you have to, that's not your job, you know? And the, the more you act like that, the less you'll be taken seriously. So I had to learn that. I heard a funny story when Edgar Wright was making Shaun of a Dead because he was so young. Between takes, one of the extras came up to him not knowing who he was and were like, well, this is some fucking straight-to-video bullshit right here, isn't it? Oh, my God. <laughs> and then he was like, you think? And he's like, yeah, this is going nowhere. And then he was like, okay, action. Check the gate, getting ready and stuff. And just... Oh, my yeah. God. Yeah, no, that guy was wrong. That extra was yeah. so wrong. So you can suck it. Um 
didn't Polly have ideas for the character that you were? I think she said that she wanted to know, be aware of what that Danielle was up to something, and mm-hmm. you were the back and forth on. Yeah, that was tricky because I think I felt like I wasn't being taken seriously or something because Polly kept wanting to change things, but that's just that's just Polly trying to you know she's a director also. I think you have to be prepared for actors really wanting to advocate and create and and have a say in what happens to their characters. And ultimately, I'm so glad that Polly did because I don't have a mother's perspective. And she, yeah, she wanted, you know, the mom to be less oblivious and to sort of be tracking that her daughter is having a bad day at the very least. Um, But I wanted her to stay oblivious and I didn't really understand the nuance that she was trying to achieve. I was like, she's not going to find out that she's this guy's sugar baby. Like how is she going to find that out? That's so unrealistic. Um, but she pushed for that. I think the whole time I was worrying about what I'm describing to you. I was like, if I let her do what she wants, like, am I, am I a real director? Or am I just a young, pleasing woman who, you know, doesn't know how to hold her own. And I'm pretty stubborn just on a natural, like personal level So I just kept saying no, but ultimately for whatever reason, I ended up always saying yes to the things that really made, made the movie so special, especially that baby shake song. Like that was, that was Polly. And I, I didn't write that song. Yeah. Wow. I didn't, that scene was supposed to be so different that that scene changed the most from script to, to script to post, honestly, like it kept changing as we were going through it. But, um, she was like, we're touching and poking and prodding Danielle the whole movie, which is what it was supposed to be. That's it. Like, we need to do something more than that. Like, what if we sing this song? And by that point, that was sort of at the end of Polly and I's journey where I was like, if you tell me to do one more thing, I'm going to break. And she slid at that breakfast the, that morning. She had retyped that scene and slid it over to me over breakfast. And I was like, I can't do this. And so it was so, I was so close to being like, no, we're not doing this song. I did say no. And she kept pushing and pushing. And then finally I said, yes. And thank God. Cause it, it's so special. That song. This film was kind of been described as a horror film, which I totally get. It gave me PTSD from every <laughs> awkward family gathering <laughs> I've ever been to. Especially when you're, well, I'm old now, but when, when you're in your 20s and before you know what you're doing and you, if you arrive to any social event single and not having your shit together, I always find this to aunts who come for you. Yeah. With yeah. all the questions. Yeah. Like, what are you doing with your life? What's this film stuff? Why do you have a beard? Why are you married? <laughs> you know? Yeah. And of course, I've got successful brothers and sisters who have their shit together in normal life. So it was always like, can you just stop with this indie weird film shit you're trying to do and maybe yeah, get I've, it together? Definitely. Well, I'm sorry you had to go through that. Um, I, I think everyone does. Yeah. On a creative path. but 
A hundred percent. If you don't fit the mold and even if you do, there's like just so much pressure as to like, well, when are you going to get married or when Mm. are you going to decide to have a kid? Like it never ends, I think, until you've set yourself up in that way that is sort of acceptable to whatever community you come from. And I think most of the time it's, it's not coming from a place of malice or like even nosiness. I think, you know, I find myself even asking my like teenage cousins, like, like stuff. And then I'm like, why am I asking them these questions? Like that must be putting so much pressure on them. Like if I'm like, Oh, like, do you, do you know like what you're interested in? Or like what, like, I don't know, like universities you're thinking about, like, and it, and then I catch myself and I'm like, I just made a movie about this. Like, it's just, I think it comes from curiosity more than anything and love, but it definitely puts the pressure on. I found for my family, I got more of the love and eating and are you okay? And the, you know, who's your, do you have a boyfriend or girlfriend or like what's going on from my, my older female relatives. And then I felt like the male relatives were like, wait, so like, how are you going to make money? (laughs) And like, (laughs) what do you, what, but what's really the plan? Um, you know, and I, even when I was like, really the plan is the one that's my favorite. (laughs) Like you program films and you write freelance, but where's the real job? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you're like, this is fun, but yeah, what's what's going to happen? You almost want to whip out your bank details. I'm like, yeah. look, no, I'm actually okay. It's working. I this know. is a legitimate thing. Yeah, you're like, I'm like, not like dealing drugs. Like, I don't know what you think is like happening here. I'm I'm comfortable. It's sustaining me. Yeah. yeah. Even after, you know, you move out, you have your shit going on. You know, I pay my taxes. I have money. <laughs> so like... So you sure you want to do this movie stuff? It's like, Jesus Christ, yes. And also, I don't yeah. know what else I, I could do, so. Yeah, it's, I, yes, I've been, that's the the best one. It's like, okay, now that you're doing this, what's really, what's the next step? And you're like, this is it. Yeah. yeah. When I was making Shiva Baby, the feature, I was babysitting for those two years. And I remember someone, I had applied for like assistant jobs that before I decided to just like be like, okay, I just need to make money. I'm just going to babysit. Like, I'm not going to wait around. Um, and I didn't get those. And while I was in the process of making Shiva baby, I was like, I felt like I was talking to one cousin and he was like on, he was starting to understand what my plan was. I was like, you know, like, and I'm just writing it in between, like when I'm not babysitting and I'm like, you know, I'm going to make it next summer. And then he was like, yeah, that's awesome. That's so cool. And I was like, oh, wow, he really gets it. And then by the end, he was like, and then like, you know, like after that, you could like apply for those jobs again. And I'm sure like after you'd made a movie, like you would get that, you would have a better chance. And, and he did not mean it in a mean way. He was like totally serious. And I was like, oh my God, like, I, (laughs) I don't know how to describe it, but I think you're right. When you're doing something creative, people really don't understand, like, especially like, I don't know. I think also coming from Canada and then going to the States, like, it's a little more provincial where I'm from. And they're like, well, what do you mean? You don't have like health insurance. I was like, I don't know. Like, I just don't have health insurance. Like, I don't know what to tell you. Like, it's not great, but (laughs) you know, they're like, what do you mean? You don't have like a salary, you know, or like, that's not what you want. Um, so yeah, anyway, it's a fun thing. I'm glad I'm not alone in this. Yes. This is cheaper than therapy. This works. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) What were you watching in reference for, shiver baby did you screen anything or reference some movies yeah i think the film that i 
Well, I think the ones that I affected me first for writing that I rewatched were, you know, Jewish romantic comedies like Obvious Child and Keeping the Faith and Crossing Delancey and um, uh, Kissing Jessica Stein was a big one. Um, and then when I started to worry, like, oh my God, I, like, is this just going to be another Jewish romantic comedy and it's not going to stand out and it's not going to be that interesting? That's when I sort of turned more to watching films that took place in one day in one location or, or a few days in one location. So it started with Krisha. Um, and you know, that's obviously, it's a fantastic movie for so many reasons, but it's also based off a short and it's about, you know, a recovering alcoholic who goes to a Thanksgiving with her estranged family. And it, it's a horror movie, even though there's no blood and guts or anything, it's, it's definitely a horror film. Um, and from there, it just sent me down a spiral of watching re or rewatching or watching other films. Well, you know, on top of Krisha, say I also, I also rewatched Rachel getting married and, um, what else? Uh, August Osage County. Um, I watched death at a funeral, even though it's, you know, not a thriller or anything. I just wanted to see how they did it. Um, I rewatched it and then I watched Woman Under the Influence again. And then I was looking up, I was like, oh, I want to do this like realism. Like I want to have a Cassavetes vibe. So then I watched, I tried to watch more of his movies and I looked up and I realized opening night, which I'd never seen, had a Shiva scene. And I was like, oh, I wonder how Cassavetes would shoot oh, it does, a Shiva. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, how would he do it? And then I ended up watching that and not taking from that scene, but I took from those lobby scenes where everyone's like talking about the play and how horrible it was and what a bomb it was. And it's like the camera is like this between your eyes and like the lips of, you know, the reviewers or the producers mm -hmm. outside talking and the, the camera's swinging in between. And it's the most claustrophobic feeling in the world. And I remember that, like that, these two or three shots within those sequences, I showed to my DP and I was like, I want Shiva Baby to feel like this. So that was, I remember we kept coming back to opening night. Um, but other than that, I rewatched Yentl for lighting. Um, uh, I rewatched Feather on the Roof just to get me in the mood. <laughs> um, and there was a lot more. I, I didn't rewatch these movies. Well, no, I rewatched also on a character level. And then I told Rachel to watch these movies, Shame and um, Palo Alto. And it felt like love. And Palo Alto. and it, Shame it, the McQueen movie? Yeah. Yeah. Why did you choose that? Well, I, I, it was one of my favorite movies and I think it, it you know, even though it's a very different uh, perspective, it, I think it yeah. has, it deals with sex fulfilling a hole in your life, you know, and right. okay, some, I get it. someone yeah. who's deeply depressed, um, uh, you know, making up for their lack of their loneliness or, you know, their inability to connect with people with sex. And I don't think Danielle is a sex addict, obviously, but, um, it's, I remember watching that movie even as a 16 year old and like relating to it because I think in her own way, Danielle is like the only power I have is through my sexual power, quote unquote, or my sexuality. Um, and that's the only thing that I have that makes me feel like, you know, in control of my life. So I really, yeah. And I sent that movie to Rachel and she like started it and then was like, I can't finish this. I'm too, I'm too disturbed. Like, um, she's such a positive person that she was like, I get it. I, I just had to watch the first 20 minutes and I get it. Um, but then I also, yeah, it felt like love, which is Eliza Hammond's first film. 
I told her to watch and then Palo Alto, which, um, uh, it is it, sort of, people don't talk about this movie enough, but it, I just think it's, I a, like that movie a lot. I oh think yeah. It's really cool. Okay. Yeah. Great. Um, yeah, it's one of my favorite movies and I feel like it perfectly encapsulates that like suffocation of like young female insecurities, like sexual insecurities when you're just wanting like a boy to like you and feel so thrown to the curb, especially that Emily character that, um, I'm forgetting the name. Emma Roberts? Her character, yes, but the other character, uh, the blonde girl, Emily, I'm forgetting the name of the actor who plays her, but Nat Wolf's uh, love interest that she, right, yeah. she like, she's basically plays the girl that like we all knew in high school who like was like thrown into a situation that looking back, we're like, that was assault, but like, you know, was trying to just, you know, get, like, basically, there's a story in the movie where he, like, there's a voiceover of Nat Wolf as she's, like, swinging on, like, a swing set and, like, dancing around in the backyard before that they before they have sex. And he's talking about how he took her to a party and, like, every guy had sex with her in the room, you know. And she's just trying to get this boy to like her. Like, it's, like, the most disturbing, like, sad feeling um, to have stuff to watch. So I told Rachel to watch that. Um, so those were those references. And then... I sort of, I, I, I didn't rewatch, um, his movies, but I really love, uh, Xavier Dolan and, um, you know, it, I killed my mother and mommy and heartbeats and, um, heartbeats. Yeah. Some of the best hair in movies. Well, one right of the there. best, one of us went movies. Hair. 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 Yeah. The hair is yeah. great. Beautiful haircuts in that movie. It's also one of the best and only bisexual movies, like bold, but just, this know. is probably why I'm not a film reviewer. Just <laughs> five stars. Five <laughs> great stars. Hair. There. <laughs> Yeah, you come away with weird takeaways from movies, and yeah, it's, that was yeah. mine from Heartbeats. That's yeah, so good funny. Hair. I'll rewatch it and think of looking for look for the hair. Um, so good. Yeah, yeah. Those so those were that was those were pretty much. I just listed a lot, but those were those were a lot of my references. Yeah. And what was your biggest takeaway from your first movie that you're gonna do or not do on your next movie? Honestly, something regarding, you know, what you were talking about with morale, I think you just have to be really careful that you don't run your body into the ground because then the work isn't as good. I mean, then your, your brain is shot. It's probably the first thing and you hate yourself or whatever it is. But the second thing, <laughs> the probably less important thing is that the work isn't good um, and you're not as focused. So I think my biggest takeaway is that it's, I think because I was young, I mean, I still am young, like making my first feature, I was like, I can do anything. I don't need to sleep. I don't need to eat well. I don't need to take care of myself. I'm fine. You know, like I, I have youth on my side or whatever that means. And I, I didn't like it, it. Even even if you're young, you're it's not it's going to affect you. So I think my biggest takeaway is you have to like take care of yourself as you're, you know, leading all of these people in a production. Um, but also, I think. I don't know. Another more positive takeaway is how much people, everybody can be so down and supportive and excited to make movies. That sounds so simple, but you know, I was not expecting all of these actors who have so much experience to get so sweaty and like, you know, tight with our crew. You know, all of us were just in this one house together, you know, it kind of felt like summer camp and, um, it made me really like excited to work with more actors and, you know, cinematographers and well, no, I want to work with my same crew, but it made me more excited to make more productions where everybody can like bond more because, you know, sometimes I think people are like, 
only doing stuff because I think it would look good or, you know, because it's just a good job to have. And um, it was really nice to see how many people on in various positions on set and in various roles are just so excited to make movies, you know, and it, even if they're not in a necessarily specifically creative position to do so, you know. Yeah, that's a really beautiful energy when you see everyone pushing for the same cause on a set. Yeah, definitely. It's really nice. Yeah. Do you have a second feature in mind? Well, Rachel Sennett and I have been writing another feature since we wrapped the short film. And that one is uh, less Jewish. It's about uh, two nerdy queer girls who start an underground bike club at their high school to try to win over the cheerleaders <laughs> from the football players. So that's been really fun. It's been much more in Rachel's style of humor, less morbid. Um, and it's, yeah, we're having a lot of fun. It's very campy. It's very like wet, hot American summer kind of inspired, you know? Yeah. So I'm excited for that. So I hope that goes next. And finally, most importantly, you watched The Sopranos in lockdown. <laughs> did you, you heard that somewhere? You heard me say that? No, someone asked you what you did in lockdown. And you, <laughs> you said, said you watched The Sopranos. The Sopranos mm -hmm. I'm kind of obsessed with and keep on coming back to. Yeah. And even we're at work, I'm like, it's like that being The Sopranos. And they're like, it's fucking nothing like that being The Sopranos. <laughs> we're not killing people. We're making, and I'm like, no, it's like that bit when Paulie's trying to overthrow yes. Tony on the, like, dude, <laughs> yes. we're showing a fucking indie movie on a Wednesday night. We're showing Gummo. Don't, it's not like it's the Sopranos. It's not The Sopranos. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. What did you, what did you make of the ending? What's okay, your take? I have to admit, I purposefully did not watch the last episode until I settled myself down and got my big TV here because not my big TV, but I was watching it on my parents' TV and then I moved to LA and I don't have my life set up yet. So I, I actually haven't watched the last episode because I want to, it deserves to be watched on a television and not a laptop. So I can't Okay, I, I respect that. That was the first thing I bought when the pandemic hit. I was like, I'm going to buy a giant TV because <laughs> I can't go to the movies. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 it's funny now that I'm in this, I just moved into a new apartment and it's the first time I'm living alone. And it's also the first time I'm, you know, like not like buying real furniture and it's not all like thrifted and has holes in it from like the thrift store. And um, I'm like, I got a couch and a bed and, you know, the most important things. But then I'm like, do I really need like, you know, appliances? Like, I think I should just get a TV. <laughs> I think that's like the next sort of like, you know, you have to take your time because moving can like really add up if you just go yeah. all at once. And I'm like, how much do I really need? Like, pots and pans like you know when we really think about it like I think I need a tv is what <laughs> like that's sort of what's going through my head at the moment um but that's the next that's the next step good for you for getting a tv like that in quarantine because I that probably like changed the game for your tv and movie like viewing experience when you're stuck inside yeah I naively well before just before the pandemic hit I was in New York and LA on holiday and I just went fucking crazy on Criterion movies <laughs> and then and then I came back and it was like oh lockdown no no movie business probably shouldn't have thrown so many bags on Criterions but then I was like fuck it I'm gonna double down and then just buy a giant tv good for you I feel like something happened in quarantine where my attention span couldn't handle uh, couldn't handle more than two hours, but I think it's because I was living with my parents and, you know, it was very loud and chaotic and I just wanted to hide in my room the entire time. 
So if I did watch anything, it would be downstairs on the TV. And I wanted to sort of limit <laughs> the amount of time that I was like in the public space to talk to. <laughs> I wanted to just be in my room alone. Um, so um, I wish I watched more movies. I wish I did the year of like watching everything on Criterion or like watching all the horror movies I didn't grow up watching, but I did not. So anyway, I admire, I'm like looking at your, like what you just said and I'm like, oh, I wish I did that. But that'll be ahead of me at some point. Yeah. No, you, you made a movie. That's, <laughs> that's more than enough. There you go. That was me with the brilliant Emma Seligman. She's going to go on to do great things, I'm telling you. Thanks for listening. Thanks to my engineer, Ewan Henselwood. Telephone Tel Aviv for all the beautiful music. See you again soon, or hear you again soon, for another podcast talking about movies. Thanks. <laughs>